Now please take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Zephaniah. We don't quite come to the end of Zephaniah yet. That will be, Lord willing, next Lord's Day evening. Tonight we're just going to consider verses 9 through 13 of chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Father in heaven, as we come to the scriptures now, we pray that the Holy Spirit himself will be our teacher and apply these words to our hearts so that the word goes forth not only in word but with power. Grant these things for the glory of your Son. We pray it in his name. Amen. been a couple of years now, but I was able to visit uh, Billy Belcher's house. Uh, he had Hillary and me and another couple from church over for lunch on a Lord's Day afternoon following worship, and in his garage he has this beautiful old Ford. I think it's a Model T, is it, or Model A? And he's restoring it. He, hadn't, he told me he hasn't done a whole lot of work on it lately, but the work he has done, it's beautiful. It looks as if it's new from back whenever the thing was first manufactured or they were rolling those things off of the assembly line. When you can imagine that a car like that, a car that old, could become dilapidated and uh, obviously unusable, but uh, get into a terrible state of disrepair. But in the hands of a skilled craftsman, a skilled uh, artisan like Billy, It can be made like new. And I thought of that, and I have an uncle, too, who who restores old cars. And when you take a car that's broken down and just in terrible state and start to refurbish it, and a person who's really good at it can make it look like new. I was thinking of how the Lord Jesus Christ, in these final chapters of Revelation, even says, Behold, I and making all things new. And I think that's what this text that we're looking at tonight is about. At the beginning of chapter 3 of Zephaniah, as we saw last week, I think the case is made in these opening eight verses of Zephaniah 3 that God is just in all his judgments, and he's perfectly just to condemn sinful men and women. 
We don't have any excuse for our sins, and we don't have any recourse either. The only hope we have is the sovereign mercy of God. And that's exactly what these verses are about. They're about the sovereign mercy of Almighty God. Here in the Old Testament, here in the Minor Prophets, here in Zephaniah, we find that God is purifying a remnant for the praise of his glorious grace. That's what these verses teach us. God is purifying a remnant for the praise of his glorious grace. And my outline is three parts. We're going to look at a purified people, a humble people, and a united people. That's this remnant that God is purifying. And so let's consider these things one by one. First of all, we see in this text God is preparing a purified people for himself. The first and the primary reference to purity in this passage or to purification has to do with their speech. Isn't that interesting? Look at it again. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. The Lord God Almighty declares that he's going to do something to these people's speech, to the way they talk, to their words. We could say to their language. He's going to change it. The Hebrew word that the ESV translators rendered change can mean to turn or even to turn around. There's one place in the Old Testament where this word uh, change is used and it's speaking of, of someone turning their chariot around to go the other direction. The word can even mean to transform. And that's what God is going to do to the speech of the peoples. And how is he going to do it? He's going to change it to a pure speech, it says. A pure speech. And we get a little bit more insight into what that's about down in verse 13, where it says there will be no deceit found in their mouths, no no deceit on their tongues. Now that is a profoundly redemptive statement. It might not leap off the page at you immediately, but for God to say, I'm going to change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that is all about redemption. That is all about God's saving work. Because we know from elsewhere in Scripture that a person's speech is a kind of window into their heart. Not that we can know a person's heart altogether, not that we can know it perfectly, and and their speech isn't the only window into their heart. But one's speech is a window into one's heart. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, turn with me to Matthew 12, because we're going to look at a couple of verses from there. Matthew 12 and verse 34. I'll start in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you see, the words that we say, the way we talk, is a window into our hearts. One's speech is an indicator 
not the indicator, but an indicator of the conditions of one, condition of one's soul. So there in that same chapter in Matthew, just a few verses later, in fact, it's in the same section, Jesus himself says, by, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. So speech is an indicator of the condition of one's soul. And now think about Isaiah. Think about chapter 6 of his prophecy, where he has that glorious vision of the Lord, high and lifted up. And when he sees the holy, holy, holy God, he realizes his guilt, he realizes his sin, and he, he describes his guilt. He confesses his sin in terms of his lips. I'm a man of unclean lips, he says, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then the angel comes, takes a coal from the altar, and he touches Isaiah's mouth, and he says, this has touched your lips. Your sin has been removed. And that word that's translated three times, lips, in Isaiah chapter 6, is the same word that's translated speech here in Zephaniah chapter 3. So that... The cleansing of the lips with cleansing of the speech is metaphorical language, redemptive language, for nothing less than the forgiveness of sins. And we could say that for God to purify the speech of a people is also spiritual shorthand for sanctification. It's a process by which God makes you and me more like his son. Because what does it say of the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9? It speaks of this one, and we know it talks of Christ. Uh, from, from the New Testament perspective, we know it's talking all about our Lord and Savior. And it says, he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit found in his mouth. And so what the Lord God is doing is he's changing the people To make them more like his son. That's sanctification. So you see how profoundly redemptive this statement in the beginning of verse 9 is. And think about Genesis chapter 11. The people of the world were all together and they had one speech. And they were going to build a tower so that they could make a name for themselves. When God's command to them was to go and fill the earth. They decided to huddle together and do something for their own renown. And God mixed their speech. He divided their languages. Well, what's he doing in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9? He's turning their speech back so that they can serve God with one accord. So there's that purification language, first with reference to speech. But then, in verse 11, he speaks of purifying their ranks, we might say. Purifying them as a people. So at the end of verse 11, it says, I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. He's going to take them out. Reminiscent of what Jesus says in Matthew 25. It's as if God is separating 
the people, the way a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll remove the proud, he'll remove the haughty. And just read the book of Proverbs to get a a glimpse of the heart of God as it pertains to the haughty. How many condemnations, how many words of, of malediction are spoken in the book of Proverbs alone against those who are haughty in spirit. Haughty eyes are one of those things that God hates. The six things, no, the seven things that are an abomination to him. And God's going to root that out. He's going to weed those people out. So that's another expression of there being a purified people. And then finally, after he's purified their speech, it says that they're going to call upon the name of the Lord and they're going to serve him. See, God is gathering a people. He's gathering a people to worship him. He's gathering a people from the very ends of the earth. Do you see what it says in verse 10? From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Remember, Cush was a region of Egypt, in the southern reaches of Egypt. And sometimes the term Cush or the name Cush is is a uh, synonym for Egypt. And he's saying way down there in the south and beyond, I'm going to gather my people. To myself. And it says, They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So God's purifying a remnant for the praise of his glorious grace. It's going to be a purified people, but we also see that it's going to be a humble people. The proud, exalted ones will be removed, and he's going to leave in their wake, in the absence of all the haughty ones, a people that are humble of people that are lowly. And we see in Isaiah 66, verse 2, that the one to whom God will look is not the haughty one, not the proud one. He has no regard for them. He says, this is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble and who is contrite in spirit. That's pleasing to him. And one of the reasons, maybe the reason that's so pleasing to him, is because, again, it's a reflection of his son. It's a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said to you, Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. God's purifying a humble people for himself. And this humility, by the way, is not a native quality. It's not something that's just inherent in them. It's one that's produced in them that are being purified. So you notice in the second part of verse 12, it says, They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. I will leave, I'm sorry, that's not verse 12. I will leave in your midst. Yeah, the beginning of verse 12. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. So just as he changes the speech of the peoples, he changes their hearts. Because their hearts too, at one time, were haughty and proud. Verse 11. You shall no longer be haughty in my mountain. And with this remnant... Humble and lowly is not how he finds them. In and of themselves, they're haughty and proud like the rest. 
Humble and lowly is how he leaves them. Humble and lowly is the end state that he creates in them through his grace. Purified. Transformed. We see that they're a, a humble people because of the removal of the shame of their past sins. In that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. These were rebels formerly. But God purified their speech. God gave them a humble and contrite heart. Because there's nothing humble or lowly about rebellion. Rebellion is proud. Rebellion is defiant. But God pronounces to these people peace and pardon. He says, you shall not be put to shame. So removing of the wicked out of the midst of the people goes hand in hand with the removal of the sins of the remnant. And it says they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Seeking refuge. It's a beautiful expression, isn't it? Beautiful sentiment. Seeking refuge in God. To seek refuge in the Lord is is an expression of faith. It's an expression of trust. I know some of you arrived here when the rain was pretty heavy. Hillary and I were fortunate enough to get here before the rain really uh, reached here. But uh, if you ran through the rain or had to pass through any of it to get inside the building, you know how it feels when you finally get inside and you're out of the rain. You have refuge from the storm within the building here. Well, that's what we have in God. That's what we have in Christ And we trust in him and have faith in him that he will be a refuge to us. And when we seek refuge, implicit in that is a dependence, a sense of our need, a sense that we're vulnerable and we need to find refuge in someone or something. And we look for that refuge in God because we need a protector. And it's a humble people who confess that we need this. It's a humble people who confess their vulnerability and their dependence upon God. So God is purifying a humble people for himself. And according to the Holy Scriptures, a humble people is the only kind of people among whom the Lord God is willing to dwell. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up. That's how remember, that's how Isaiah described the Lord when he saw him. He was high, he was lifted up. And now, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So God's remnant is a purified people. His remnant is a humble people. And they're a united people. And so let's go back to what he said he's going to do in verse 9. They're going to be a people of pure speech. He's going to make them that way. And when it speaks of pure speech, I think we can take that in a couple of different ways, and I think they're both valid. They're not incompatible. It's not doesn't have to be an either-or. So when he says their speech will be pure, we can take this to mean that it will be a speech that is morally pure. There won't be profaneness. 
in their speech. And they will no longer be taking upon their lips the names of the idols of the nations. They will worship only the Lord. (coughs) So it's pure in the moral sense, but it's also pure in the sense that it's a unified speech. It's one speech, one language. They will all have one language. And we see that unity in the fact that all of them, God is purifying their speech. He's changing it so that they can call upon him and serve him with one accord. If you happen to be looking at an NIV Bible tonight, instead of saying that they may serve me with one accord, your Bible might say so that they may serve me shoulder to shoulder. That's actually a more literal translation of the Hebrew there. Serve me with one shoulder is kind of what it says. But the idea is they're going to be all united in service to the Almighty. We see that this is a united people because God is gathering them. Look at verse 10 again. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones. They're dispersed, you see. But God is bringing them to himself and they will bring their offerings offerings to him. They're coming from afar. And if they're going to bring the offerings before God, then implicit in that is that they're going to gather for worship. And you see how God describes his people at the end of verse 13. He describes them, he likens them, those who are left in Israel, to a flock. And he says, They shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. What do we see there? We see God's provision. He's going to provide for all of his people. That's what we get from the fact that it says they shall graze. They'll have plenty. They'll they'll eat. They'll be fed. They'll not only have provision, but they'll have rest. It says they shall lie down. You see the, the peacefulness of that imagery. And he's going to provide them safety. He's going to be their protector, their defender. None shall make them afraid. So this will be a united people. A purified people, a humble people, and a united people. Now, standing behind this passage, the whole thing, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Good Shepherd. The one who laid down his life for the sheep so that their sins could be forgiven, so that their speech could be purified. The Lord Jesus Christ who is gathering for himself a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Who himself said there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. And he is the one shepherd. We see in this text A promise from the Old Testament, from hundreds of years before Jesus became incarnate on earth, that God is going to answer Jesus' prayer that he prayed on the night in which he was betrayed. John 17, where no less than three times he prays to his Father for you and for all of his people that we may be one. This passage tells us that God is going to grant Jesus his desire. He's going to answer that prayer Give him his will. 
So this text is a gospel message. It's a message about forgiveness of sins. It's a message about God saving his people. The whole Bible, here we are in the, in the, uh, the minor prophets, but all of scripture should be interpreted and understood through the lens, through the grid of the three major themes of scripture. Creation, fall, and redemption. And if we see that as being the organizing theme of the Bible, we'll probably end up on safe ground in terms of our interpretation. I know that some of you have done some reading and some study that add a fourth uh, consummation, right? But to me, consummation is just redemption completed. So I like the the three-part paradigm. Creation, fall, and redemption. And redemption is no less than God's glorious repairing of the ruin of our first parents. So as a result of the fall, we're like, we're like that old Ford before Billy Belcher ever got a hold of it. Broken down, rusty, no paint, doesn't run. God comes along and he begins to rebuild. He begins to restore. That's what redemption is all about. It's the undoing of the fall. It's the undoing of the curse. We've seen evidence of it even in our reading from Revelation tonight. Think back to Genesis 3. (coughs) Man sinned. God cast him out of the garden. And he put an angel at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword to guard the tree of life. So that man couldn't get to the tree of life. What do we read tonight in Revelation 22? This city that has 12 gates that are all always open, day and night. And in the center of that city is what? The tree of life. And we'll be admitted to that tree of life. We'll be able to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. That the sin of our first parents disqualified us from. And then, again, to go back to what we've read here in Zephaniah and relate that to Genesis 11. When the people were building the Tower of Babel, God came and he confused their speech. They couldn't communicate with each other any longer because he he mixed their languages. He did that to prevent their evil schemes. But in Zephaniah 3, he purifies man's speech. That language which was confused but also perverse and impure. God purifies. Why? So that with one accord, we can all call upon him and serve him. This is Babel undone. This is the undoing of the curse. This is the fall undone. What man ruined through the fall... Christ rebuilds. Christ restores. And he will do this to the whole creation. In the end, and right now, he's doing it in individual lives. 
of men and women and children. He's doing this. He's undoing the fall, undoing the curse, restoring us to what he intended us to be through his mighty gospel and his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we and our parents have made a wreck of your creation. Morally and in every other way. Thank you that you're a gracious God and that you're a healer and that you're a restorer. And we pray that you enable us to have the great privilege of seeing that restorative work carry on. We long to see everything made new. But in the meantime, we pray you'd continue that glorious and gracious work of making us new, making us more like Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 25. Please turn to hymn number 25 and let's stand and sing together. <laughs>